of the chant and this little meditation is going to be the best part of this class. Um, as I was going through this Kevalyapad, <clears throat> I just realized, boy, I cannot understand <laughs> so much of it. I mean, it's just very, very cryptic, mystic. It seems like it doesn't even... It's like Patanjali is jumping from thought to thought and you can't even really find the common thread at times. And it almost feels like Patanjali expects us to now be in a state of Samadhi. You know, it's like, oh, I brought you until Samadhi, so now you should be in Samadhi in this final chapter. Because it's about Kevalya, it's about the Absolute. It's, it feels to me, and maybe it's an excuse for not being able to understand it, but it feels to me... It's like when you're in this state of absolute, now if you look down upon the drama of life, this is somewhat how you would see it. And so it's a very hard, very hard really to tune into. Um, you know, maybe as we speak together, some thoughts might come, but let's just see. And uh, that's why when we started with this chant, you know, O thou king of the infinite, I behold thee in samadhi. And of course, everything about Patanjali's teachings is leading us to that samadhi, but then that final line is, you know, really more important. In joy and in more joy, <laughs> you know, in thy light of mellow joy. That's really the key element. So that's really what we're seeking, even though there's a lot of heavy, wonderful philosophy behind it all. But in joy, <laughs> if that joy is going to be missing, if we start trying to really scratch our heads to try to figure it out, anyway, we're missing the point of samadhi all together. So let's attempt together, you know, I mean, there's, uh, fortunately, Swamiji does expand on some of these things, but even some of his expanding <laughs> commentaries are a little like, whoa, you know, where do I really, really pick this up from? Um, we ended the previous pad, this Vibhuti pad, with a lot of emphasis on um, uh, siddhis, uh, a lot of emphasis on powers. Oh, you can get this, you can know this, you can understand this, you will be able to understand your own body, you can understand the solar system, you can, you know, he gives us very practical, but it's a little like, oh, all these things that you can gain on the spiritual path. And um, a lot of the emphasis was on the gaining of certain powers, understandings, qualities. So he starts the Kevalyapad with this statement. Siddhis are born of practices performed in previous lives or of the ingestion of certain herbs or by the repetition of certain mantras or by pain-inducing tapasya or by samadhi. That's an interesting mm -hmm. list there. ingesting herbs, which is, to a certain degree, kind of... That's what uh, Patanjali recommends. So, what he's saying here, first of all, is we need to first see what Siddhis mean. Siddhis doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I have the Siddhi to become as big as I want or as small. In here, Siddhis Patanjali is referring to is just the talents, the skills, the qualities we start developing, all of us. And so the first thing he says is Siddhis are born from our previous lives. Any work we've done in the past, that we're going to have. 
If you have a talent for drawing beautifully, that's your Siddhi. That's something you've developed. It's not something that you've had to painstakingly work at now, but you've obviously painstakingly worked at it before. If you have a very healthy body, that's a Siddhi. Because you've probably been taking good amount of herbs somewhere in the past. You know, certain Ayurvedic practices perhaps that you've done, you've eaten well, you've been very mindful of these realities. And so this life, you know, my father, he's a smoker. And, but for a smoker, and when I say smoker, he's like a heavy smoker. He smokes the pipe, not even, you know, not even cigarettes. So he's always with a pipe, but his health is good. I mean, he walks up, you know, he's, he's scaled the Mount Kilimanjaro. He goes up to these amazing heights and does all these treks that... The bicycle. Yeah, he's bicycled throughout India, 12,000 kilometers. You know, I mean, just feats that even I won't be able to do. But his health is good. And this is something, you know, he's brought a somewhat healthy body. In the, although right now, he's pumping a lot of poison in it, which he would call his herbs. You know, in his next incarnation... That's going to affect him somehow, even if it does not manifest fully here. So when we're looking at Siddhis, we're also just looking at the process of how we're gaining awareness, qualities, strengths, talents, and everything that we bring. So we can do it, one, by just our practices. We've brought it from the past. Two, we can do it by artificial means as well, which is what essentially shows what Patanjali thinks about Siddhis which is not very highly of it. On one hand, he's saying, Samadhi se asakta hai. On the other hand, he's saying, hmm, you can take some Oshad as well. So he's, he's really trying to show us that don't make a big deal of this. Don't make a big deal of what you've brought from you, what you've generated or what you've created. I mean, we know even of a lot of psychotropic drugs that momentarily awaken, oh, wow, I feel so good. Oh, I feel love for everyone. And Swamiji here says, you know, but the love, he says, if somebody is on such a drug and says to me, oh, I feel so much love for you, I feel so much oneness for you, he says, but in that moment, if I get stabbed, the love he will feel will be also for the red color that's oozing out of my shirt. He won't be able to relate to what's happening. Oh, wow, what a beautiful red color, you know? So it's a, it's a chemical shift, but it doesn't necessarily bring about any clarity of <laughs> awareness that's permanent in us. And we know, of course, in the scriptures even, kafi jadi booty and all people would use. You know, jadi booty for immortality almost. Jadi booty for greater strength. You know, you'd go to a, a doctor and he'd put, you know, some paste for you and he could give you a siddhi, potentially. He could give you a quality. But that's what Patanjali is saying. Yeah, but these qualities can be artificial. They can be developed through samadhi. But he's just saying... That's just what it is. They're just qualities that we've developed. And he, of course, says also through mantras, which is something also we can practice in that we've seen a quality of calmness comes when you are constantly doing japa. You know, these are siddhis. And of course, through tapasya, through a lot of energy that is being directed and held. And then that energy allows you to manifest it in any way. So he starts by saying siddhis as a very general term, not just as, you know, to become invisible or to levitate, but these are the qualities that you can develop because we'll see what he then talks about. Then he goes on to a very interesting <laughs> 
Sutra and he says, the transformation from one species into another is brought about by the flow of Prakriti. I was just like, whoa, where, where are these species concept come in? He's just, but if we look at his previous um, sutra, in that he talks about janma, which means by birth, right? It's, so what he's also talking about is we all develop qualities just by consecutive births, just by nature, just by circumstance. Say, for example, you're, somebody's born in a very hard reality. I, he has to walk, you know, two kilometers just to get water. Now, this person's going to develop a lot of siddhis because there's tapasya involved. But he's not saying, I want to develop willpower, so therefore I'm going to do this. He's not choosing to develop these things. He's developing it because nature itself, birth after birth, is going to force us to develop qualities. And so he says, the transformation of one species and this what Patanjali is saying, which is interesting, is this comes from all the way back. As an elephant, you develop certain things. As a lion, you develop certain things. As a mouse, you develop certain things. As an insect, you develop certain things. And each species, as it's transforming, passes on qualities born primarily of nature. The lion isn't saying, oh boy, I'm going to just be this really ferocious animal. And I really want to become this amazingly powerful animal. It's just become amazingly powerful by the way nature has been guiding it. And we're actually picking up on a lot of these characteristics. We're picking up on a lot of these siddhis. When man comes finally as a, we can almost say, an, uh, you know, the fulfillment of all these species, he comes with the possibility of and the potential of every one of these species. Therefore, you can have Tiger Swami who, who can battle against tigers just by pure strength alone. Because he could develop that because it's innate in him, but it's still, it's all just nature bound. So again, what Patanjali is saying is all your powers, all your talents, all is just nature moving you forward from one incarnation to the other, from one transformation to the other. And then he says, finally, incidental qualities do not affect a person's spiritual nature. They must simply be removed as a farmer removes obstacles to a flow of water. So now he's telling us what he truly believes about these siddhis, about these qualities. They do not define your spiritual nature. Spiritual nature cannot be developed just by nature alone. It's not just going to move you forward. It has to be a choice. It has to be, I want to unite myself with God. But you can keep developing a lot of siddhis and talents just by birth after birth after birth after birth. Just the way nature has been guiding you by circumstance, by what you've learned in the previous things, by artificial means, by doing a lot of tapasya. So, you know, a cyclist can do a lot of tapasya and build an amazing strength. But then in the next incarnation, that strength continues and he uses it elsewhere and he gains something else, so on and so forth. But these are incidental to our spiritual search. They do not define our spiritual search. And we constantly think, oh, if I'm a spiritual person or if I'm heading towards this greater reality, I ought to have a lot of these qualities. But according to Patanjali, at some point, a lot of these qualities become impediments. Uh, Ashanaya Swami often calls a, call, says that our 
our strength when taken to an extreme becomes our weakness. And often that happens. Oh, my strength is my intelligence. But as I start trying to move towards God, that very intelligence eventually becomes a stumbling block. Oh, my willpower is my strength. Eventually, that becomes a stumbling block because the inability to surrender in that moment. So on and so forth. And so for Patanjali, he says, what we're really trying to do, even as we're developing these qualities, is to be able to remove them as obstacles towards the final goal. So what he, what, but what he's saying is, he's seeing it from up top. You see, he's not seeing it from where we are, because from where we are, we need to keep developing qualities. <laughs> we need to keep, you know, you can't be like, all right, so I don't have to develop any quality. No, you have to develop willpower. You have to, but you have to want it towards spiritual growth and not just develop it by circumstance, by nature, essentially. But when you get to the absolute and you look down and you say, Phew, none of that mattered. None of that will eventually take me to that absolute truth. And so this is how he's starting it. First telling us, you know, these are amazing. And now he's just saying, yeah, it doesn't matter because eventually you have to get rid of them. Once a great yogi has attained Nirvikalpa Samadhi, his enlightened consciousness can produce in visions several of his past memories together. We'll just continue because so we can club some of these thoughts together. Although the actions of those many bodies may differ widely, his original chitta or primordial feeling remains the same. Although in those meditations he perceives many personalities, he himself remains untouched by any latent impressions of past karma from those lives and by any past craving or attachment. So... This is what he's saying. Now you've gotten up here and you're looking at all those amazing things, all those talents, both good and bad, because our same talents, <laughs> when taken to the extreme, become our weaknesses. So the person who can surrender very easily becomes lazy and eventually that becomes their weakness. And so on and so forth. It all comes from the original primordial feeling, which is the feeling of wanting to continually move forward. Very nature is constantly trying to move us forward. And so no matter what we do, our good and bad chitta is moving always in that direction. And in one incarnation, that very quality could be a positive. And in another incarnation, that very quality becomes a negative. And when the Yogi is looking at his whole scene. He can see all these incarnations. He can see all these things. And he feels completely detached from it, untouched from it. None of those siddhis, those powers, those amazing qualities, both good and bad, as I keep saying, because we shouldn't think of siddhis as good things alone. <laughs> Sometimes those very siddhis, or as Patanjali says here, eventually they will become stumbling blocks on the spiritual path. The actions of a true yogi are neither good nor bad. Even though actions which proceed from ego awareness are of three kinds, good, bad, and mixed. Um, I think mixed seems to be more or less most appropriate because you can never quite tell good and bad. And 
I haven't seen anything that could be wholly good or wholly bad, but I'm sure there are such realities as well. But what he says, an action of a true yogi are neither good nor bad, which means that they leave no impression. They don't result in anything one way or the other. Uh, master said, everything that I do to generate good karma, even though he has no reality to generate it, is so that the disciples can benefit from everything that I generate. But he himself will leave absolutely no impression and any action he does will have, will go neither way because it moves him in inwardly. His chitta doesn't get excitable in either direction. However, ego-motivated actions are always going to either be good or bad or mixed. And then he says, of ego-motivated acts, only those vasans. So when an ego-motivated action is done, which also means that maybe some of our actions, when they're not ego-motivated, we don't have to wait to be a perfect yogi. Sometimes there could be, although I feel it might be very rare, as long as there is an ego, there tends to always be you know, just that relatability back to ourselves. But every now and then it feels you could do something that doesn't leave a mark that doesn't create any karma, that isn't good nor bad. But when we're in ego-motivated action, only those vasanas, which are our subconscious impressions, for which present conditions are favorable, bear karmic fruit in any particular incarnation. So here Patanjali is referring to the fact that not all our karma is going to play out at all times. In every incarnation, whatever present favorable condition exists, those karmic realities are going to come out. But you'll see as your incarnation progresses, uh, you may feel like, oh yeah, I don't have any issue with anger. And then when a favorable condition arrives for you, know, for you to get angry, in that moment, suddenly that karma could return. Swami gives an example of somebody who, you know, had a relationship with drowning. Perhaps they drowned somebody in a previous incarnation. And in this incarnation, they're not around water at all and they're up in the mountains somewhere. So it's like, so maybe that particular karmic relationship wouldn't need to play out until another incarnation where a water body can be involved. So what that means, and this is what Patanjali was talking about before as well, is that each incarnation will bring out certain vasana, certain subconscious impressions, depending on whatever the nature of that incarnation is. And they we build on the past based on whatever it is. And it's helpful to see what is the nature of this incarnation for us. You know, what exactly has have I been given in this incarnation? And just kind of making a mental list of the circumstances we have, the people we have, and then just getting a sense of what are these subconscious tendencies and impressions that I'm working on? What am I drawn by the most? What am I triggered by the most? Um, the good thing is, of course, we don't need to worry about the karma that's not being manifested. Um, the practice of Kriya Yoga, though, is amazing because it gets us to work on things that aren't even going to manifest in this incarnation. But what is manifesting in this incarnation, of course, is the one that we need to be paying closest attention to. And it helps to know that, oh, there's a very specific reason I'm with these kind of people. I'm in this kind of situation, this kind of home, this kind of work with these talents, with these siddhis already developed. Are these siddhis being an impediment? 
Are they being helpful to my spiritual evolution? Where do I draw the line there? Where can I relax from my so-called skills and talents? Where do I have to apply them? I mean, it allows the yogi really to, again, most importantly, live as mindfully as he can, fully aware that everything that has brought me to this moment is an effect. I'm an effect of everything that has happened thus far, has brought me to this moment, and therefore, I now need to kind of understand what that effect will bear in this incarnation. Though memories are individualized according to class, locality, and time, the impressions they leave are the same. Again, Patanjali, you know, it's just, it's very hard for us to tune into, is he talking about the yogi who has achieved Kaivalya? Is he just giving us general information? Because suddenly he'll go into like, this is, I'm talking about this yogi who is perfect. And then sometimes he makes an, an, you know, a statement like this. And I'm wondering, is it like for us? Is it like all our memories, even though they might, you know, be different kinds of classes of memories, a different locality or a different time period? But it says the impressions they leave are same. Swami says that in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you're not able to, even though you can see and understand and experience each memory, but he says that you don't see, it's like your relationship to them will be always exactly the same. You will no longer feel, oh yeah, in this I felt hurt, oh here I felt great joy, oh this memory is so, was so loving, oh this memory was so painful. The impression after you've achieved a high state is going to always remain the same. Later on, then Patanjali goes and says, oh, every characteristic, every quality that we develop based on the reaction we create to it. So he's just jumping back and forth at times. And I, for one, uh, couldn't always follow. Oh, where am I now? Am I, am I the high yogi or am I, you know, just the guy? Am I Shurjo again? Since the desire to live is eternal, those impressions have no beginning. This is another very interesting thought. Since the desire to live is eternal, those impressions have no beginning. Patanjali is essentially saying it's from the very moment that creation existed, all these impressions, all these vasans, all these possible tendencies, they already existed from that very moment. There is no point that you can go back and say, ah, this is where... Swami says, all thoughts are universally rooted, therefore all actions are universally rooted, therefore all impressions are universally rooted. At no point did you create them. So it's just like, boy, you know, you're trying to overcome stuff that you've not even created. And you can't even find a point where you say, oh, in that life I started this thing because and this is the interesting line here. Since the desire to live is eternal, the desire to exist, existence itself is eternal. And no matter how long you keep going back, you'll keep finding the same impression in some fashion or the other. Here he says, in that high state of consciousness, those past impressions do not intrude themselves as having had a moment of initial impact. You can no longer even ascertain where those desires came from. 
again, that's what I'm saying is just like, where is Patanjali seeing all this from? Because for us standing here and reading these, sitting here and reading this, just like, okay, <laughs> now what do I do? The characteristics of personality being held together by impact and reaction, desire and attachment disappear upon the cessation of these four. The characteristics of personality. You have a personality, I have a personality. They're very characteristic, they're very particular. You know, we can tell you and I apart quite distinctly because we're very individual. He says, our personality and the characteristics are held together. I like that word, held together by impact and reaction, which means cause and effect. What happens, the impact of something that happens to us, a stimulus, and then the way we react to it. That's what holds our personality together, this constant thing. We'll get stimulated and we will always respond to our stimulation in one fashion or the other. And it's held together by desire and attachment. When these four disappear, then disappears the various differentiating characteristics of personality. Desire, attachment, cause and effect. Past and future exist, and this is one of those again, Past and future exist not only subjectively, but objectively, because of countless differences among the beings involved. You see, when you read this, Swami has simplified this so much, because I, I went, you know, I remember when Swamiji wrote this book, he sent it to you know, several of us by email. I wrote back Swamiji saying, oh, Swami, what a lovely thing, you know, and I remember I read Patanjali when I was in college and it was such, I loved that book then. And, you know, Swami wrote something like, did you understand it then? And I said, oh, yeah, Swami, I understood everything. And then he told Narayani later on, <laughs> like, like, how could he have understood such, a, you know, such a cryptic book? <laughs> because Swami did not believe that I understood it. And I don't know what I understood back then because here I am, you know, reading this and after 14 years of somewhat gaining a greater awareness of some of these concepts, I'm looking at these words and I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what I read back then. But I went, while I was reading this book, I went to the version that I read, you know, which is one of, and the language over there is so confusing. You know, they use words like, and then the mental emotional being vacillates between its own innate nature. I mean, it's just like words, just very heavy words. And I was very surprised. I was like, God, I must not have understood anything. But somehow, because we were reading it like a novel, you know, just, oh, yeah, yeah. But now we're reading it like trying to figure out you know, what Swamiji is trying to say, what Patanjali is trying to say. And so past and future exist, not only subjectively, but objectively, because of countless differences among the beings involved. Okay, let's just break this down a little bit to whatever I've been able to understand, because even what Swamiji writes here is a little more than for me. But what is subjective? Subjective is it's related to us. Right, so uh, past and future for me is subjective. How I experience past and future is very subjective. What I'm experiencing, you're not experiencing. So it's subjective. So he's saying, of course, past and future exists 
but not only subjectively but also objectively which objectively means we're all seeing the same thing we're all experiencing the same thing so when the yogi experiences kevalya finds that absolute he realizes that past and future actually have a true reality which is weird because we keep saying time is an illusion past and present and future don't exist but he's saying here patanjali when you're up here you start to see past and present existing not just as you experienced it but because the karmas and this is what it is because countless of different beings are involved so swami ji gives a very nice example here he says say you did something you know you hurt somebody greatly in some incarnation and while you may have overcome the karma for it but the hurt that you created lives on in that person and lives on in their karma and then the hurt they will create and what they will do and so he's like even though you've moved out of the picture what you've created continues to have a past and a future cause and effect continues to exist and that's what past and future means one is a cause one is an effect one happened and one will happen he says that will continue on eternally no matter how many people exit the scene along the path so it's going to be subjective like you had a past you moved it and you've moved out of it so that's the subjective part of past and future but the objective part is the people that were intersecting with you continue to have a past and a future and so your actions continue to live on in them through them for all eternity and he gives the example here that you know you cannot if you've done something you cannot truly expiate in other words the sin of having started that fire so he says say you started a fire you burned somebody's house down you know maybe even kill them i don't know um so you cannot truly expiate the sin of having started the fire you can only achieve freedom from the burden of that karma so you could only achieve that reality that i never started that fire in the first place god did but the fact that you started the fire and that the, somebody's house burned down and they remember that they you know and they carry that on lifetime after lifetime that reality will continue what he does mean in a certain way to say is if you step out of the drama the drama doesn't cease if we step out of the dream we think dream khatam but when we step out of the dream all the other dream beings they're continuing <laughs> their dream continues on and on and you can come in and out of that dream whenever you want that's the great that's what the yogis do that's what the masters do but interesting and weird is when you come up there and you're like looking at all these cross sections and you see i have removed myself from it but people's karmas their realities just continue past present future will always exist as long as there's somebody in that dream drama continually experiencing that whether manifested or latent these characteristics belong to the nature of the gunas now again it's just like i can't figure out what's the what's the connection to the previous sutra suddenly he throws in the gunas whether manifested or latent these characteristics belong to the nature of the gunas 
which means one way or the other, they're defined by Sattva, Rajas, Tamas. Anything in nature will always have these three gunas. He says, and this indicates, the only thing it indicates for us is how far we are from God or how close we are from God. And that's again very important for us to know. The degrees of separation from spirit help us understand where we, where we stand in our continuing evolution. If there are far too many characteristics in you that separate you greatly from spirit, that's a, that's a good understanding. The thought that you will probably, you know, a lot of us, when we come onto the spiritual path, we come with this gung-ho, very excitable, I'm going to be free in this life. <laughs> I'm going to have samadhi right now. And then, you know, just like, oh, why don't we just look at some of our characteristics and just get a sense of where they might be in the guna scale. And if you have a lot more on the Raja or Tamas side, you know, that's just that far you are in degrees of separation from spirit. I'm sure you have a lot of Sattva as well, but it just helps for us to know. Because again, it's helpful to see, as Patanjali says, all these characteristics are coming to us again and again from incarnation after incarnation, even from when we were a different species. And so it'll just help you know where you are. Since the gunas work together in all things, there is unity in them all. And so now again, he's gone up to the top view. He's like, for the master, because he can see the play of the gunas, all he sees is the same thing happening. <laughs> he's not differentiating it at all. He's seeing the universe play out the gunas, he's seeing individuals play out with their gunas, he's seeing characteristics play out as gunas, circumstances play out as gunas, everything is a guna. Oh, I'm in this situation, is this situation sattvic, tamasic or rajasic? Oh, I acted in this way, is my action sattvic, tamasic or rajasic? Oh, the person next to me who was also involved, are they sattvic, tamasic, rajasic? Is the galaxy am I living in sattvic, tamasic, rajasic? Is in that galaxy the planet I'm living sattvic? Master said, we are in a rajasic galaxy in a rajasic planet. So we, we, we've got a very rajas energy and we can see that all around us. There are galaxies that are much more sattvic and even in our galaxy, there will be planets that are much more sattvic, even in this rajasic galaxy. And he says it depends on how far you are from the galactic center. So the closer you are to the center of a galaxy, the more sattva is being, just as the closer as we are to the center of our being, the more sattva is going to be manifested. The further away we are from the center of our being, the more tamas or rajas is being manifested. But you see, everything has that. And so a part of the unity that the yogi experiences is by seeing that the entire universe is just a play of the gunas. And so he can tune into everything as that interplay. And he sees unity in that, not di differentiation and distinction as we would see. Owing to differences in various minds, perception of the same object may vary. So that's the other thing. The perception comes just because there are differences in us. But when the yogi has no more difference from anything, he does no longer perceive things as distinct and in, you know, separate. 
but we're going to see we see the same thing and we can't perceive it the same way you know if you are in a mood and you're feeling downcast you look at somebody and you'll probably perceive them a certain way and if you're you know uplifted and in a mood and you'll see that same situation and you'll see swami would say um somebody who's really tired and sleepy will look at somebody with their eyes closed and say oh they're asleep and a saint would look at the same person and say oh he's in samadhi you know because that's the perception that they have and all of us that's where the world really is subjective and everything is relative because you know i don't know what i'm looking at but only the yogi perfected in that state of kaivalya is able to see and understand what he's looking at until that time we're just making stuff up based on everything that we've developed thus far and it's just a pain <laughs> everything we've developed till this point now colors everything about this world for us and even though all of us are looking at the same thing we're all looking at it completely differently and therefore we're all relating to it completely differently and because we're relating to it completely differently it's very hard for us to actually come together it's very hard for us to then act in unity towards anything and um, you know it just makes the whole process that much harder should we stop here you want to do one or two more perhaps i'm just seeing how many pages are <clears throat> then he says again these are i think these are just revelations that because i don't know if you're seeing i don't know if you're seeing but you can't find a very individualized thread passing through all of them it's just like boom 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 he's just dropping concepts you know we started with siddhis and now we're talking about the gunas and then he's like the various minds are different and he says there's past and future i mean he's just kind of it's like he's in this state and he's just talking about everything that he's experiencing and seeing in that moment and he expects us to be in this state with him he's like i just explained to you in the first three padas how to get to samadhi so you should be in samadhi now and then together all of us should be experiencing these things but i'm sorry patanjali we're we're not experiencing these things so he says nor does the experience of anything depend on the perception of a single mind he's just like nor does the existence of anything depend on the perception of a single mind so this is he's coming back to the subjective and objective first he says everything is subjective because everything that we're seeing depends on who we are then he says but none of what you're seeing depends on your individual mind because everybody's mind is adding to this reality so it's a very complicated you know just very hard for the mind to even comprehend but he's saying ek to aap ho and jo aap kar rahe ho that's determining everything dusra aap jo kar rahe ho usse kuch nahi ho raha because kitne aur log hain kitne aur karmas hain kitne aur visions hain how many more people are weaving together and creating this one reality that you are perceiving even though you are perceiving it individually but if i remove your mind from it nothing changes <laughs> just as so if even if the yogi steps out and says ciao i have you know i have done it i'm checking out this drama this race this nonsense just continues because it's not dependent on that one single mind an object is known or unknown depending on the degree 
to which the mind accepts it. So it's not about whether it's real or not, whether it's known to us or unknown to us is dependent on the degree that our mind is allowed to accept. This is where openness is so important. Whether we'll understand something or not, whether we'll know something or not, depends solely on whether we are willing to accept it. So it's a lot to do with belief. You know, there was this whole time where, in fact, weirdly, there's a huge movement now even, it's called the flat earthers, that believe that the earth is flat. Maybe it is, like, who knows? <laughs> you know, I can't say for certainty, but, you know, I think we, most of us, believe that the earth is round. And so, no matter what you do, whether it's known or unknown, it's just whether you're willing to accept it or not. Some people are willing to accept that we're, you know, living in Kali Yuga. Some people are accepting that we live in Dwapar. Those who believe that we live in Kali Yuga can no longer see beyond certain realities. And therefore, we'll say certain things can't be changed. They'll say certain things are just the way they are. But those of us who believe, you know, we're living in a higher age, we're looking at, oh, look how everything's changing so rapidly. Oh, look how amazing it is, these new things that are happening. But everybody else is saying, oh, we're going towards darker ages. Oh, look at the world, it's getting even worse and worse. And we're saying, oh, look at the world, it's getting amazing. Look at the things we can do. And it just depends on how much our mind is willing to accept. Which means that while we're dealing with one reality, we're actually dealing with our own individual reality. And what we gain from the same experience that all of us are having is completely individual. There is no guarantee that all of us in this room right now, sitting in the same temple, looking at the same masters, doing the same Kriya practice, trying to live by the same principles, will in any way do it the same. We will all only grow in as much as we are willing to accept that growth. Otherwise, we're, you know, we can know it all, we can read it all, Patanjali can lay it, uh, you know, a little weirdly, but still he's laid it out fairly well for us. But at the end of it all, we can only know what we're able to accept. And my mind I mean, just can't quite accept what's past and future and, you know, how is the, how the gunas actively at play and making everything that's happening around me come to life. Just, it's just way so far beyond. And that is a somewhat discouraging thought from the perspective of, oh boy, maybe I have a long way left to go. But then on the other hand, when we started this thing, we started with that chant, you know, oh thou king of the infinite, I behold thee in samadhi, but in joy, and in joy, and in more joy. And that's what Swamiji always said to us. He says, you know, I'm not, I don't have any siddhis, and I'm not experiencing anything, and I'm not seeing any visions, and I'm not seeing any light, but I am constantly in bliss and that's what we're going for you know we may not be able to figure it all out we may not be able to resonate with every sutra in this book but we can all be and live in more bliss so while we appreciate patanjali taking the time and energy and effort we should also in our own way realize that it's not by understanding everything in this book that that final state of joy will come. I was thinking about the first few words that we started this class with, 
when Patanjali says that Siddhis are born of practices from previous lifetimes and we don't really need to go to our past lives but perhaps we should concentrate on the practices that we want to develop in this lifetime because eventually that's what will carry on to other future lives and our next incarnation which is not really the skills but the consciousness we develop in this lifetime and that's something that we should seriously start working on it and in the sutra one of the sutras uh, here says that you know you have to choose to practice that particular state of consciousness it shouldn't be just because you are naturally evolving into that particular you know it's part of your evolution the power lies when you choose to be happy under all circumstances. The power lies when you choose to be centered in the middle of chaos. The power lies when you choose happiness in a sorrowful situation. And these are practices that will help us to develop the state of consciousness that we will carry. And what that state of consciousness? It's a city. That's the city that we are developing. So for me particularly this week, I'm working on the city or the practice of equanimity. And you know, very recently we had a chapter in the book study of autobiography of a yogi and it was about this saint Ananda Moima and she was talking about how in each stage of her life there was something that never changed her consciousness just she went through every possible situation and she said I was always the same and I was thinking wow that's hard to achieve but you know, that's where we are heading, each one of us. And sooner or later, it's good for us to practice it. And we don't need to choose bliss if that's a very big concept for us to practice daily. But perhaps we can choose to practice equanimity or calmness or joy or centeredness or whatever you choose to practice but know that that conscious choice is going to become a city and that's the powerful thing it's it's not about what that practice brings but the city that we carry for the next incarnation so let's just take a moment and see for this coming week what's the CD we want to start developing by choosing an action, state of consciousness, a thought pattern that we are going to practice throughout this week. See what that might be for you. Whether it's joy, compassion, calmness, 
equanimity, cheerfulness, peace. And I'm not talking here to practice it when all the circumstances are favorable. But especially those moments or with those people who we tend to react to or be impacted by. And in that moment, in that practice, in that choice, we are planting a seed for that action to become a seed. So what are you going to consciously choose throughout this week to practice? Be very clear. Envision yourself working at it. with determination, with energy. With courage. Let's just take a moment of silence to integrate what has been shared throughout this class. and see how we can put it into practice. Well, dear ones, looks like we just have um, six more pages remaining. So in our la next class sh should, in all probability, be our last class uh, of at least the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. Um, let's try our best this week to really keep in mind and develop these siddhis because that's all we can do. You know, we can't worry too much about anything else, but every day we have to make these little choices of consciously living by these principles or else um, all this wisdom, all this knowledge is just useless. So let's make use of it. Jai Guru.